As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Ron Temple makes us smarter this morning. Go ahead, a multi-asset head. And it was Lazard Asset Management. And Ron, I want to cut right to the equity paragraph in your always crystal clear note, which is you are focused on the grand conundrum into next year, which is measuring the persistency of cash flow, the persistency of free cash flow. How do you actually do that? Well, this is all about doing the bottom-up fundamental analysis, Tom. I'm sure you're familiar with that. I mean, looking out and trying to understand what makes a company generate high returns on capital and what are the drivers of whether that return on capital can stay high or whether it declines. And so we're really focused here in terms of, you know, what I'm looking at in the equity market is trying to avoid the speculative growth stocks that are all about earnings that might come down the pike, say, five, seven, ten years, where all of the value of the company is in that terminal value and it's much more vulnerable to higher discount rates and avoiding the deep value cyclical stocks that are most at risk if you have a recession and sticking right in the middle of that kind of continuum on the quality stocks, the companies with high returns on capital that have pricing power, brand advantages, um, strong management, strong balance sheets. And that's where you really want to do the work to understand what makes a company so strong and how they can maintain that position over time. Ron, we've heard this before from other uh, people who are trying to gird for a recession, but it feels like the mood shifted this week. Have you shifted anything about your thesis in the heels of the CPI report and PPI and even uh, what we're seeing in terms of Fed funds futures? I think the market is reacting to the positive sign that we've probably seen the peak in inflation. We've finally seen inflation roll over. And it's more of those cyclical items, the items that we all thought were transitory about a year ago that are rolling over. If you look at the decline in CPI that we saw this week from last month, from June to July, 25 basis points of the 40 basis point deceleration was cars and airfare. So those are factors that we knew would roll over at some point. What I'm really watching is rent of shelter. What I'm watching is wage growth. And so I think investors should be careful because, you know, as I listened to you for the last few minutes, I think there's a propensity in the market to say, okay, this story's over. We're going to go back to the old playbook. The Fed won't have to raise rates as much. And I can buy these companies that are growthy kind of call options. 
I don't think that's the right call. I think we're in the midst of a paradigm shift on inflation. And when inflation does settle, I think it's going to settle with a three handle, not a one and a half to two percent like we saw for the decade into 2019. So I would be a little a lot more careful than I think I'm seeing in the markets of kind of overreacting to data in the short term. Okay, so Ron, if you're more careful, does that mean you still view what we've seen as more of a bear market rally than a bona fide sustainable rally? I I do still believe it's a bear market rally. I mean, I could always be proven wrong. We always have that risk. But what I look at is I think we need to wait for data next month. I expect CPI to come down again. Um, I'm very interested to see the job numbers. There's, there are mixed signals in the job market. We had a great payroll number last Friday. But if you look at the JOLT state of the job opening labor turnover survey, we've seen a million job decrease in the number of unfilled positions in the last two months. Now, again, that data is a month lagged relative to payroll data. But what I want to see is are those unfilled jobs going away? which then means labor has less negotiating power, which then means you're less likely to see wage growth, which would be less likely than to pass through to prices going up for goods and services. So, so I think we need to watch more data, but right now I think this is a bear market rally as a base case assumption. And again, I would be careful of running back to the playbook that worked for the last 10, 15 years, because I think that playbook should probably be thrown out. Well, Ronald Temple, if we throw out quality large cap stocks, which is the mantra right now, we're all going to read about it five times this weekend, what is the new mantra going to be? Well, to be careful, I think quality is the playbook you want. I think the playbook for the last 10, 15 years that worked was buy the call option, buy the company that has a really cool business plan that's getting access to capital at zero interest rates, unlimited capital, one would argue. I think that's going to be much tougher. So it's that end of the spectrum I think is more at risk. I think quality, it's interesting, Tom, there's been a Venn diagram overlap, right, where a lot of the quality and the growth were the same company. I still like the quality growth companies. You know, those companies that can generate high cash flow and grow, right. that's great if they're at the right valuation. Ronald Temple, thank and you so much. the good news is, by the way, the valuations have come down. So thank you, Well, Tom. they have. Ronald Temple, thank you so much for starting us off strong with Lazard Asset Management. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Right now, and hugely anticipated for November, is a book. But when Stephen Roach writes a book on China, it has a focus and intent on their economics and politics like no other. The book is Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. This is hugely anticipated by the Chinese watching community. The gentleman from Yale and the China Center at Yale Law School joins us this morning. Dr. Roach, thank you so much for joining. You've written three or four books on China. Why is this one different? What is the tension at this moment as Mr. Xi goes to the party congress? 
Well, Tom, in the, in the past five years, we've gone from a trade war to tech war to now uh, a cold war. Conflict is escalating. There is no real uh, framework to manage the, this conflict effectively, uh, let alone conceive of even the slightest semblance of resolution. And in a f period of escalating conflict, the smallest spark can lead to a major uh, clash. And we certainly have seen one in the last uh, week over Taiwan, and I'm very worried about the possibility of uh, you know, a military accident in the Taiwan Straits occurring in the context of this escalating economic and technology conflict that could really uh, lead to a serious uh, uh, outbreak between the United States and right. China. The, th the thesis of the book is the conflict would not have happened were it not for the false narratives that both nations harbor with respect to other, and I develop these narratives in detail in the new book. Right. Well, what is important here is what matter of diplomacy is needed. What is the Roach approach to a new diplomacy that can perhaps calm down these pressure points? Well, my idea, and I develop it in detail in the final part of the book, is that the uh, the, the current uh, structure of engagement, whether it's you know leader to leader phone calls between Biden and Xi Jinping, or earlier strategic and economic dialogues as grand summits, has failed miserably. And so, I am proposing uh, a permanent institution that I call, for lack of a better term, a U.S.-China Secretariat that meets full-time, 24-7, uh, staffed by an equal number of professionals on both sides uh, of the, um, uh, the relationship, whose full-time job is to deal with all aspects of the relationship, from economics and trade to cyber and human rights. And we need a new approach, and this is uh, you know, one idea, may not be perfect, but it certainly beats the current failed approach. Stephen, there might be a lot of uh, uncertainty on the policy side, but businesses have to make moves. They have to either expand and double down on their expansion plans in China, or they have to withdraw, which we've seen a number of companies do on the margins. And we hear more and more about reshoring or onshoring of U.S. companies away from China. How materially will that shift the dynamic of trade at a time when a lot of people say this will be inflationary? Well, I think I think it will be inflationary. I think that the, the, the trend toward reshoring is an unmistakable out, outgrowth of geostrategic tensions between the United States and China that can better be addressed through a structure such as the one I just outlined, uh, Lisa. But, you know, make no mistake, this is very destabilizing, uh, not just for the U.S. and inflation, but also for uh, uh, China. China benefited the most of any nation in the world from the ups, upswing of, of globalization. And it has uh, the most to lose, I think, as we now move from uh, globalization to deglobalization. So there's a larger issue, though, for the economy, and this is something that we were just hearing about from Ron Temple, how he thinks that perhaps we'll get back down to a 3% inflation rate, but not much below that because we are in a new paradigm. And I wonder, how much is China the main part of that? If you have reshoring, which incurs more expense, and you have slower growth in China because of exactly what you said, because this is going to affect the world's second biggest economy significantly, how much does this portend a slower growth, higher inflation environment for a longer term? 
Well, you know, we debate how much China has uh, held down uh, U.S. inflation over the past 20 years, but it's been significant, as has uh, uh, the rapid expansion of global value chains or global supply chains. And as uh, supply chains are disrupted by uh, China and other developments around the world, as we move from offshore to onshore, uh, good luck in getting inflation right. down to three. It's it's going to be a very difficult well, uh, goal to achieve. Steve, I've been dying to ask you this. You built Morgan Stanley Economics. You were the first American economist I know that tried to make a three-leg Fed policy of unemployment and inflation. And you said, watch the balance sheet, the expansion of the balance sheet. All that came true, as you wrote about years ago. What's the Fed theory now? If you were to if you were to parachute into Jackson Hole here at the end of August, what is the theory you're going to find about central banking? Well, you know, hard for me to know how they're going to phrase it, Tom. But I think the Fed theory has got to go back to basics. You know, forget this uh, QE balance sheet, asset dependent economy. It's blown up repeatedly since Greenspan and Bernanke. I tried it uh, in the um, uh, the 90s and the, and the early uh, 2000s. The Fed's got to go back uh, to inflation targeting, not average inflation targeting, but plain old inflation targeting. Uh, and um, uh, we need a you know a dose of the very simplistic but tough and disciplined approach by Paul Volcker. Uh, Jay Powell is you know says he's very much committed to doing this. Uh, the Fed's taken some big steps, but right. it's, you know, child play to compare to what they have to do. The real federal funds rate is still sharply negative. You're not going to control uh, inflation with a okay. sharply we, negative we, real Steve, federal that's funds on, rate. That's on the LM side. Okay, help me here with the real economy and the unemployment rate. If we go all Lawrence Summers this morning and pop it up, as Anna Wong at Bloomberg says, to a 4% or 5% regime, what does that do to America's unemployment rate? It's going to go up, Tom. I mean, you know, we well, give me we a magnitude a, here. No one's watching. Give me, give me a magnitude here. Somewhere in the four to five percent zone, which is, you know, a small price to pay. Not, not for those who were affected by it, of course, but a small price to pay to, uh, to get inflation back under a, a more uh, stable uh, path, consistent with sustainable growth uh, in the U.S. The path we're on right now doesn't cut it. Okay, so Stephen, obviously there is a, a trade-off potentially between keeping inflation in check and supporting growth. And, and to tie it back to China, the PBOC earlier this week was saying we aren't going to go with massive stimulus to support the economy despite the turmoil in the property sector, the COVID zero policy causing issues because we are worried about the specter of inflation. Do you expect that eventually if China isn't going to take steps to breach a 5.5% growth target that the Federal Reserve is going to balk too? Well, I think, um, you know, the, in, are you asking about the Fed's concerns over U.S. economic growth? Yeah. I think the, you know, the, the mandate is going from uh, dual to single. Inflation is the focus, and they can't afford to flinch on bringing inflation back because of political pressures that will be evident as the unemployment rate starts to rise. And, and the Fed has just got to be... Uh, fierce and focused uh, on its independence and on its uh, desire to bring inflation down as soon as possible. Stephen Roach, wonderful to catch up with you uh, today, of course, at Yale Law School and formerly with a Wall Street firm named Morgan Stanley. 
Right now, we're going to digress here. I thought what Lisa was talking with uh, Dr. Schiller about on the break was really, really important. Wendy Schiller is with Brown University, director of the Taubman Center for American Politics, and a, a writer of core textbooks on our civics as well. We've alluded to this before, Wendy, but I want to talk about two candidates who I believe will be 78 and 82 in 2024. And that means if my math is right, they'll be 82 and 86 on the way out the door in 2028. How did we get the fossils running for president? Well, I think general trends in aging are, are, are good and people are aging better across the country. So that's a good thing. I think in time, we came out of a very long, where people thought it was a very long recession uh, and the world has become less stable. Obviously, the Cold War ended and we all celebrated freedom around the world, but freedom brought with it a lot of um, unpredictability. And then, of course, we had the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when you have that much tumult and uncertainty and certainly even the 9-11 attacks, people want comfort. They want people who've been around a long time who can tell them this, shoot, this too shall pass. People look to the familiar. They look to people with quote-unquote experience. Donald Trump had business experience that he touted, uh, and Joe Biden had more than 30 years in government. Wendy, I'm struggling with that idea because we've seen poll after poll saying that they would like to see new blood leading the Democratic Party. They would like to see a younger slew of Congress members across the board as we enter into a very new phase. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for the Democrats that President Biden announced his intention to run again? I think it's a good thing. You can't have a president not even ending his second year, full year in office, who says, well, I'm not in anymore. I mean, even if there's the slightest chance Biden can still be president a couple of years from now, that makes a difference in terms of influence. That makes a difference in terms of public opinion. You just can't be written off. We saw this with Clinton after the Republicans won the midterms in 94. You know, oh, he's irrelevant. He doesn't. He won two years later relatively easily. You have to maintain the exercise of power and the illusion that you want to keep that power. So I think that's a strategically important thing for Biden to do, and there isn't any reason for him not to do it. So you think that this is more about the visuals, more about the illusion, and less about a true intention to run? Well, I, I think he can stay. He can stay in this race until somebody in the primary starts to beat him. And and you know the myth that primaries are bad for parties at the presidential level has been has been debunked. Now we know that it generates more turnout. It generates people registering to vote, knowing their polling places. They get out the door. There's you know th we know that it increases turnout amongst the party members. So uh, that means that it's a good thing to have some fighting, some challenging, uh, some anticipation. So if he's in it and other people want to challenge him, that just means more Democrats get in the game to, to vote. And we know that Republicans will be very, very energized in 24 to, about whom they'll be loyal. We don't know who they're going to pick, right. but we know I think there'll be more than one person in that race. Yeah, it's a good point, Wendy. Obviously, there's multiple variables at play. Let's just assume for the moment that the 2024 candidate on the Republican side, hypothetically, would be President Trump. Is there anyone on the Democratic side of likely potential candidates who would be able to beat him other than President Biden? Well, if the election were held today, uh, unclear to me that anybody could except for Biden. And again, people like what they're used to. There's been a lot of victories lately for the Democrats. You know, if economic conditions, you know, ease up, I think that, you know, the, the president, former President Trump is facing a lot of different inquiries. Uh, some of them are more scary than others, I think, to voters. And again, that, that core of independent suburban voters is key. They rejected Trump in 2020. Uh, and I think there isn't any reason to think they're going to welcome him back with open arms in 24. So I 
think that's what the Democrats are counting on. Mm. But, you you know, we, we got Pritzker in Illinois, big state. We got Gavin Newsom in California, big state. Kathy Hochul, if she wins again, big in New York, becomes a player. And then, of course, he's got a couple people in his cabinet that might want to run, which makes for awkward cabinet meetings, theoretically, <laughs> later on. But, we, you know, we, we are seeing energy, energy on the Republican side. And now we're okay. starting to see a little bit more energy on the Democratic side. You have to maintain the energy, so you have to give them choice. But you are the most powerful person in the world, and why you would walk away from that two years early, uh, you know, that's just, that's political malpractice. And Wendy, finally, if we could just look to the more immediate future and the midterms in November, there was a sense prior to this week that Democratic momentum was building. You have the Inflation Reduction Act, gas prices are coming down. It is looking a little bit more optimistic for the Biden administration. And yet, as you allude to, you now have this galvanizing force when it comes to President Trump's base because of the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. Do those two forces cancel each other out and we're now left with kind of the same outlook on the midterms as we had before? That's an outstanding question. I think uh, for Democrats, though, and again, this independent group, if Trump looks like this base of Trump's is going to get out the door and, they're, and they are behaving in ways that are frightening uh, to some people, like trying to bust into an FBI office uh, with, you know, being armored, um, with being armed, I think that scares uh, suburban voters, it scares independent voters. And if it looks like this will give Trump uh, momentum. I think the same forces that got out the door in 2018 on the Democratic side will get out the door again. You load up abortion on that in key states. It's going to be a referendum statewide. I think that is going to help the Democrats. I don't know if it saves them for the House, but it could very well save them for the Senate. Wendy Schultz, thank you so much for joining us with an August update. She is at Brown University here on the politics of the moment. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, Dennis Gartman joins here with Futures Up 14. Always good to speak to the gentleman, chairman of the University of Akron's Endowment Fund. He's retired. No, he's not. He's still writing uh, the Gartman letter on an hour-by-hour basis and joins us today. Dennis, Lisa wants to talk about bonds. I want to talk about hydrocarbons. You know they're out of control in Europe. They've got a modest matter of a war. Are we going to see methane, natural gas, are we going to see different forms of gasoline in America surge like electricity in France? Probably so. Propane is probably going to go a lot higher. Nat gas is probably going to go a lot higher. Inventories are extremely limited here in the United States. They are unbelievably limited in Europe. If we start pushing uh, nearby nat gas through $9 per million British thermal units, and we're trading about $8.50, $8.60 per million British thermal units, if we start moving through $9, you start to go back to where we were in 2005, 2006, and 2007 when we get to $13 per million British thermal units. So you have to be very careful. Things are very tight and likely to get tighter. So 
it's it's not a pretty sign out there right now. And you're talking about natural gas, Dennis, but you could also apply this to certain oil inventory reports. There are some different yeah. ones. And I wonder how much we are fragile heading into the winter to see a spike in oil that could reverse some of the optimism about the disinflation that we've seen in this week's reports. Keep an eye on the term structure. That's That tells you more than anything else about what goes on in, in crude oil specifically, especially storable commodities such as crude oil. We're in a small backwardation. We were in a larger backwardation a month and a half ago. The backwardation has narrowed, but in the past couple of days, as prices of, of crude oil have fallen just a little bit, taking we got what WTI down to $88 per barrel the other day, and the, the nearby backwardation began to widen marginally. Backwardation is where sophisticated and informed money leaves its footprints. And if the backwardation starts to widen a bit, we're going to start seeing crude oil start to go higher again. So I think you've seen most of the decline in crude oil predicated upon a decline in driving miles here in the United States and a demand and decline in demand for gasoline and diesel. I think you start to see at $88 a barrel, that's probably the low. And I bet we, I bet we trade 95, 96, 97 in the not too distant future. So keep an eye on the backwardation. A widening backwardation is always bullish for the crude oil market. Wow. So let's transfer that a $95, barrel forecast here into your projection for the economy for markets, especially because a lot of the trading activity has hinged on this lower oil price. How much does that reverse some of the gains that we've seen in stocks and send yields higher? I'm afraid that we're seeing the, 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 the low on yields. We're going to see the much higher prices in, 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 in yields, much, much lower prices in bonds. You had something that occurred last week, which I think not enough people are paying attention to. You had an outside reversal week and an outside reversal day in the long bond future. Very rare circumstance. We've only seen it one time before this year, and we've only seen it two or three times in the course of the last five or six years. When you have an outside reversal, I pay attention to it. It's one of the, it's one of the technicals that I pay great, a great deal of heed to. And an outside reversal week is a very rare event. Probably means lower bond prices, probably means higher yields over the course of the next several weeks, the next several months. Be careful. And I think that that's the, the, the decline that we've had in the long bond for the long bond yields over the course of the last month and a half mm-hmm. was predicated upon a decline in, in inflation, decline in crude oil prices, decline in grain prices, decline in, in livestock prices, a decline in copper prices. And all those seem to be turning around and turning back to the upside. So be careful up there. Keep an eye on gold. Okay. If gold starts to get through 1825, the game changes completely. Well, Dennis, we know the story in the first half of the year was when yields go up, it's bad for the equity market. That is why we saw growth stocks underperforming to such a degree. They have staged a pretty remarkable comeback over the last month. <laughs> is essentially what you're saying, if yields are going higher from here, that's not going to last much longer. I don't think it lasts much longer. As the chairman of the University of Akron and I got us to move a, a good 14 or 15 percent of the portfolio out. We got very lucky. We did it on December 31st. And as I've always said to everybody in a bear market, he or she who loses the least will be the winner. We've lost less than most other endowments. We have a meeting next week, and I'm probably going to say we need to reduce our exposure just a tad more. You're going to reduce equities. You're going to reduce equity exposure even with this ginormous rally we've seen from June 16th, Dennis? At at the margin, probably another one or two or three percent. Nothing dramatic, nothing extraordinary, but. uh, I think the rally has been a rally in a bear market. The volume has not been uh, as illustrative or as dramatic as it should be on, an up, on a move to the upside. And over the course of the past six months or seven months, volume seems to come in on the downside rather than on the upside. Another technical circumstance to pay attention to. So 
I'm going to, my position will be that I'd like to reduce our exposure just a tad, whether I can get the rest of the committee to agree is another story. Then what do you do with it? What do you do the rest of it? By options on the Cincinnati Reds or uh, (laughs) do you, do you go into cash? What do you do? It was a good game last night watching the Cincinnati Reds, but uh, I, th- I think cash is probably not a bad place to be. In fact, I think cash is a very good place to be. Cash being two-year bonds and under, two-year treasuries and under. Dennis Garbage. Bill curves going to continue to invert. It's it's been inverted for now for a month and a half. Yep. It's probably going to. I think the twos versus tens get to gets to eighty basis points without too much difficulty. Dennis, we've heard that this week. Thank you so much, Dennis Gartman, with us with the University of Akron Endowment Fund, and of course the acclaimed Gartman letter. Paul Sankey, founder and lead analyst at Sankey Research, with decades and decades of experience of the microeconomic analysis of all this. Paul, how close is America to the many deviation leaps that we're seeing in European hydrocarbons? Are we delinked or linked to those war events? Well, the good news, as you know, Tom, is that we produce a vast amount of oil and gas here. So 10 years ago, we were net importers of 8 million barrels a day of oil, believe it or not. Now we're net neutral. So the U.S. oil and gas industry has done a phenomenal job, not only of oil, but we're also now the world's largest natural gas exporter. And as you know, the problem in Europe is that they really don't produce a whole lot of domestic energy full stop, certainly since they shut down nuclear and coal. So they've added to their own problems. So... The, the big pull here is going to be a concern, which is exports to the Europe and, and whether or not that drives right. local gas prices very high. As natural gas prices very high is quite possible. You can parse a barrel of oil like no one. Let's wander over to methane and natural gas. When Paul Sankey sees NG1 go from two to eight, what does that signal for you? Well, probably that we're going to 10. The uh, price in Europe, as you know, is more like 50. Um, per MBTU, I mean, extraordinary prices. So the draw there, if it costs you about five, six, seven, eight dollars to cross the Atlantic, there's obviously implicitly a massive pull on our exports. And that's, I think, going to be sufficiently large to pressure natural gas prices into winter. It now becomes a question of of weather. Uh, We've got hurricane season, which hasn't really happened yet at all. And then, of course, the, the really concerning question, and it's a major concern, is how cold it gets this winter. And if we get a globally cold winter, we're going to have death, I'm afraid. Well, that's on the natural gas side, and that's a pretty dire projection on this Friday. Uh, on the oil side, the IEA is saying that an increasing number of gas-relying uh, electricity providers are turning to gas to oil prices, to oil, in order to stave off some of the shortages. How underfunded is this market? How cheap is this market relative to where it will be at the end of this year? The U.S. price, I mean, it's yes. way below, as I said. I mean, we, you know, as I said, we're over $50 per MBTU, more or less in Europe, and, and quite possibly going higher based on what uh, Tom and I were just discussing, European electricity prices. They've they just, you know, they've gone, as he said, uh, exponential, essentially. But I mean, um, in terms of oil prices, that's where I was going with this, with this idea that uh, we've the, seen this disinflationary input. Yeah, okay. So the oil situation is a bit different because essentially Russia makes more money from oil and continues to supply oil to the market. So the oil crisis is not a crisis to the extent that the gas crisis is. Uh, So there's going to be a major pressure upwards on natural gas prices. At the moment, there is marginal use of oil, which the IEA has highlighted, as you said. Uh, Not least propane, for example, is a direct substitute for natural gas. But also generally the use of oil and coal 
uh, is going to be driven by by the problems in Europe, no question. It's just that the Russians really haven't reduced their supply of oil, anything like what they've done to the natural gas side. Paul, here in the United States later today, the House is expected to pass the Inflation Reduction Act and eventually the president, assumably, will sign it. The measures within that, some of them, including the tax on methane emissions, how do you expect that could impact the supply landscape here in the U.S.? It's significant. It's split the industry. So the big the big oils, the Exxons, the Chevrons, the ConocoPhillips, already have very strong methane limits and continue to pursue zero flaring as a target, for example. And then you have this enormous tail of companies. Uh, I think there's 6,000 U.S. oil and gas companies, of which I can only name 50, So, if at, at best. So this enormous tail is under direct threat, and it could be, assuming that it passes and then is implemented strongly, it will be a major pressure to the downside on marginal U.S. gas production, no question. So is there a threat that the Inflation Reduction Act, at least when it comes to energy prices, actually becomes more inflationary? Yes. All right. Paula, or Paul, I think we probably should leave it there. Tom, what do you say? I think, Paul Sankey, thank you on short notice for joining us here today with what has been underreported in the American press. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.